This is Caffeinated Risk, the monthly podcast for security professionals by security professionals, focused on the principles of enterprise security risk management, exploring technology and business management issues and how they relate to information security risk. Once a month, two self-proclaimed grumpy security guys bring you analysis, insights, and interviews with leading security risk professionals to learn how they work through a project, a program, or their careers using a risk-based approach to security. Now, here are your hosts, Tim McCreet and Doug Lees. So, welcome, everyone. This was one of the Longest booking <laughs> sessions ever in the history of caffeinated yeah. risk, but well worth it. Absolutely. Let's get Alexander introduce yourself first. This is we're we're looking forward to all of this to have Alexander Hoffman and Tim Wenzel here. So we'll let Alexandra chat first, and then flip it to Tim. Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for having me um, on this podcast. I'm Alexandra Hoffman. I am the owner and founder of the business called Crisis Ally, and uh, we try to do crisis management elevated. It's all about resilience. It's all about consulting, advising, training the crisis management teams and leaders so they thrive when they're facing a disruptive situations regardless of the risk they are facing. We really focus on, you know, training and, and consulting and preparing f- mindsets, I would say, and habits, right? That's what we do. Awesome. Mr. Wenzel. Uh, Tim Wenzel. I'm the creator and co-founder of The Kindness Games. And uh, that has been around for two years now. It started over COVID as a way to refocus uh, people's mindsets on positivity. Uh, but as Alexandra would tell me, like, not toxic positivity, like something that's useful, something that will actually lift other people up, create community, bring people back together, and let you see the world from a better mindset. Uh, also, I'll... Tim McCrate met me in the security industry. I got 20 years in the security industry in the Fortune 50 technology sector, government sector, all that stuff. Yeah, we've even done a couple of presentations on enterprise security risk management. Well, only about 20. I was going to say, yeah, maybe more like 20. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Doug. I'll let you roll. So. No, I was going to say it's uh, it's interesting that we're we're talking about any kind of risk and. Uh, Alexandra is in France, and they, we were talking about forest fires just before this started. And I'm thinking back to the biggest forest fire I know about in Alberta was the Fort McMurray one. Yeah. And they evacuated something north of sixty or 70,000 people in a couple of days with planes. No trains up there, but we had automobiles and everything. And not a single person was hurt. And even though uh, houses did burn down and things like that, it was about a year later. And somebody had pointed out, like, one of the reasons nothing really went wrong in Fort McMurray, relatively speaking, was that every second person has regular safety training, regular thoughts about what can go wrong and how to handle it. And so, you know, and Alexandra was saying, any kind of risk that's we need you need to start thinking about it and then you guys mentioned enterprise security risk management i didn't hear the word cyber in there once it's all risk right 
and it, it can be literally anything that takes your business out. So that was sort of my first thinking on this title is, uh, you know, resilience is your risk management strategy, not buy this widget or take this class kind of thing. So how does one get resilient? Or where do you start, I guess? Where do you start this journey? Where does the journey start from for resilience? That's... Yeah. <laughs> It's a process. It, it's it's a process. Well, you know, Alexandra really led uh, over COVID in this arena, uh, which is how we actually came to know each other. She started hosting roundtables <clears throat> with lots of different security leaders in Europe, U.S., all over the world, <laughs> talking about what their organizations were currently going through and trying to figure things out, but also bringing in studies from McKenzie, Deloitte, other uh, consultancies to talk about what things were on our new horizon. And just holding these brainstorming sessions that were not only great networking, but really thought provoking and challenging. Um, and so that's why she's kind of a, a thought leader in this area because she's not stuck in security. Mm -hmm. She's not right. stuck in right. business resiliency. She's not stuck in any specific spot. Uh, she has a global holistic view of what resiliency looks like and what the risks to it are. Thank, thank you for this uh, intro, Tim. Um, thank you very much. No, it, it's true because I started in security 21 years ago, and that's what I, you know, that's what I studied back in college, and that's what I, the first job I landed in a big company in, in New York back then. And it was very siloed, and it's always been very siloed. The reality is that I found that whenever we had to face a disruptive event, right, whatever it was, a small incident, medium incident, or global crisis, right, those silos did not make sense at all and would actually hurt the organizations. And no, I'm actually opening an open door here, but still, I still... I still hear too many of this right now, too much of this right right now. Even when I speak to leaders today, um, we actually had another roundtable yesterday evening, and uh, we talked about you know the issue about silos. It's it's really hard to to put them out right, and um, so that's how I came up with this resilience topic. You know, several years ago in my head, I was like, this is more than security. This is more than business continuity. This is more than crisis management. It's like, we should, we're all involved in this. And uh, everyone has a responsibility basically to, to make sure that the business, when I, because I was working for businesses at the time, right? But to make sure that the business or any sorts of organizations can keep on going, right? Um, so, of course, resilience is uh, one step. There are other steps beyond that, which, you know, we can discuss about, like, sustainability, right? If we really want to be sustainable in the long run, yes, we are f resilient first, So, and we put everything in place so our businesses and organization is sustainable. Um, so, it's, it's, again, it's a process. It's a, long, a, li a lifetime process, I would say, for organizations, for individuals, for, including for teams, Right. So um, it, with my company, I focus on teams because that's where I've belonged my entire career. Um, but I now have more and more individuals asking me to provide, a, you know, training or advice or advisory services to 
to be more resilient as a crisis leader, as a security leader, right? It's uh, becoming like a necessity. And I'm happy to see this because I've been one of them before and it's a hard job. So so it's uh, it's not an easy job. So it's good that people are now ask, asking to get trained and asking for help. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, like, I, I kind of want to jump in real quick and ask, and I'll, I'll ask Tim as well, Alexander, is how do you go from... We had to have a disaster plan or disaster recovery plan. And then it, it kind of graduated to this whole business continuity plan. So it isn't just a disaster now. Now we got to keep the business running. But how do you get that? How do you mature that company? Or how do you get that company to start thinking along the lines of being a resilient organization to get to the next stage of be a sustainable organization? But how do you how do you break past that mindset of well, I just have to deal with the disaster? I just have to get the business continuity plan going. I'm, I'm going to take the binder off the shelf and open up to page five and declare the disaster and, and go to work. And hey, we did that back in, you know, not that long ago when we had a fire in a data center here in Calgary. So, but how do you, how do you get a, a company or an organization or even individuals to start thinking outside of that space and get them to that concept of resilience? Or is, is that where some of the biggest struggles you're finding is, is getting out of that mindset and moving into that resilience space? We try to share stories. I'll let Tim elaborate on this yeah. one. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, so that this, this is where Tim comes in. Right? So, <laughs> so, you know, uh, there's this phenomenon coming up next month called GSX. Mm-hmm. And lots of people are going to it. And if you've ever been to a security conference before, you look at the agenda and you say like, oh, that's going to be a good talk. I'm going to go see that, right? And you show up like ready. And like three quarters of the time, like you're bored in five minutes. And you want to be there to understand that. So, Tim, when you and I evangelize ESRM, the main thing we talk about and the main thing we get questioned about is, well, how do we get a seat at the table? Well, here's the thing. If you do not have a message that is relevant and interesting, a way to hook into the mind of executives, you're never going to get a seat at the table. And if you get there, the first time that you lull the room to sleep, you <laughs> won't be put on the agenda again. Yeah. And there's one yeah. thing that Alexandra and I have been talking about for several months now. It's the brain's, um, the brain craves storylines. If you start to tell somebody a story, the brain can't look away. It can't be distracted. It's like, oh, what is this story? It's like cats and catnip. It's like, ah, ah, ah. And, and so why do we not begin to understand how to feed stories, good stories, relevant stories into our presentations, into everyday business conversation? You know, uh, Alexander and I just met uh, in May when I went out to Europe for work and uh, we had talked over COVID. We'd done a lot of Zoom calls and roundtables, but we never met in person. And on that trip, I took uh, two young people in my program. And we went and we talked to executives, VPs, directors all over Europe. And the one thing that they said is that like, you never start until they're interested and you never start with business. You always start with the story. And I said, yes, because that's how you get them interested. You have to hook them in something to get their brain in line thinking about like, what does this guy have to say? And then you have to hook them, find a way to make them interested. And then you can have the conversation. 
but we often just start talking about stuff that they already don't understand, don't really care about without actually grabbing their attention. What do you guys think about that? I want to add that marketing experts and movie makers actually use these <laughs> tricks to to get us to get our attention, right? So this is uh, I've got I've, I've actually learned about this not when I was in, com in inside companies before, but I learned about this as a business owner because I realized that if I was using my typical way of speaking and approaching people, I was actually boring them out. So I was like, wow, I need to do things completely differently when I speak during a conference or training or even one-on-one, -on -one, right? So um, when you're facing the fire, basically, you know, you see you have to learn to, to speak differently to catch people's attention, right? But it's true that when we are inside a company, yeah, we want to influence stakeholders. We know it's a problem. We know it's an issue, but there is not much at stake, right? You don't have your salary at stake because of that. Yeah, I suppose if you're you're actively uh, trying to engage as a consultant, then there's definitely going to be more pressure to be interesting. Um, I think everybody here has done that at least a little bit. Um, if you're on the inside already, so they're sending you a check every two weeks, and your job is to now influence people elsewhere in the organization. And I know a guy signed me up for a gig like this once, and it wasn't the best gig because you're here to influence. Like, what does that mean? You have no budget, you have no ability to fire or anything, and yet you have to convince them to do something they don't want to do. And one of the ways we actually started solving that was using a visual and getting them to talk about how things could go wrong with their system. And we draw up a model and try and get them to tell us why the model was wrong so that they had they had some engagement. But I'm I'm kind of curious how you open with that because in our case they were mandated to attend. You know, just because you're made to be there doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy and understand, right? And how many people have given a great, a technically great presentation and had zero questions at the end? Yeah. And mm -hmm. like, if you get to that point, it's either people didn't understand or they didn't care. And both are a problem. I, I got to ask you both, how do you get to this the complexity of resilience, but from a risk strategy. So this idea that we're now looking at resilience and understanding the concept of resilience from a risk management perspective, how could we incorporate that into something like ESRM? Or how can we incorporate that, you know, whether it's a cyber problem or a physical security issue or a life safety issue, or even working with other humans? How do we get to the point where people understand that resilience really is another strategy to reduce risk inside an enterprise or an organization? So, so I think, I think, uh, that's my two cents on this one, that resilience is not meant to reduce risks. We can't avoid life disruptions. We can't avoid man-made mess. Right? right? It's, however, I believe resilience 
this process resilience, this mindset of resilience can mitigate the impacts. And this, this is what I think about this. From all the experience I've had in my life, whether they were, you know, pretty successfully responded to or, you know, more or less, it's never perfect. You know, anyone who says it was, he led a, a disruptive event perfectly, it's pretty much a liar. That's, that's my view on this. It's never perfect. Yeah. But when it was more, whether it was more or less successful, you know, um, we will always try to mitigate the impacts of the situation, whether it's a situation like the Arab Spring, whether it's a situation like 9-11, whether it's a situation like the wildfires, what do we want to do? We can't stop what's happening, however. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, we can try to put some things in place to, to prevent those events, but we're not God. And I'm really clear about this one, at least for myself. So I'm just, I, may, I might be a cynic in that sense, right? Where I think we can't escape from things to ha- from from things happening to us, right? As individuals, teams, or organizations. So I might as well just work on my resilience as much as I can for myself, for my team, for my family. Um, so yeah, it's all about the impact, I think. Mm-hmm. And impact is one of the portions of the risk equation. So if there's no impact, there's no risk. So by reducing the impact, you're reducing the risk. Very much so, yes. So how do you, when you're taking this approach of reducing impact, are you getting the stakeholders' input on what's the worst thing? Because Tim and I, we've done a few interviews now, and I keep hearing, you know, on the worst day or what would put you out of business kinds of questions. Is that pretty consistent with your practice as well or I'm not sure I'm taking that road because we are humans we have a human brain and there are things we just can't imagine correct so instead of falling into the trap of this confirmation bias where everyone is going to respond to me it's the cyber attack and I try again I try to make them think of the bigger picture basically Mm -hmm. what's the impact of not being resilient on their decision-making process? What's the impact of not being resilient in the way they manage the, the team during the event? What's the impact of not being resilient on themselves during while they manage the event and so on and so forth? Because I seriously, I mean, the confirmation bias, the herd, the herding effect, right, is like mm-hmm. for everyone, including myself, um, I'm, I'm also human, it's for everyone. So I try to not go, not go this way, because this road, sorry, because... I'm not sure it's helping. I'm not sure it's helping. You know, all those events, whether it's 9-11, those big events, like the war in Ukraine, the day before the war in Ukraine, experts, like I'm not an expert in geopolitics, right? Experts in geopolitics, it's not going to happen the day before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm not asking people, what do you think is going to happen? We don't know. (laughs) Very clear. The only thing I'm listening to are the, um, the megatrends. Mega trends are actually, I think, extremely interesting, and I'm actually getting interested in that. Um, you know, long-term trends. Uh, I guess people doing foresight or do are specialized in this, right? Um, this is very interesting to see what's going on in the world or in regionally or locally. You know, right? I think this is interesting to look at. 
But again, it's really to help build the resilience. What's hot, basically, what's what's happening mm-hmm. and what might happen in the next 10, 15, 20 years, that matters. But short-term, short-sighted events, I'm, I'm not focusing on this, really. When I work with my clients, I don't work on this. You know, it, it, the way I think about resilience, um, whenever we set up security programs or we want to talk about risk, like we have to understand like what the baseline of normal is for anything, mm-hmm. right? right? So that we yep. can measure... Yep how far away we got to normal and like what it feels like, looks like metrics show you gets back to normal. And so where resilience really does come in um, is helping to understand like, how can we get back to that baseline of normal in these types of instances? Is this, is this even a goal? Right. Right. Will we be able to get back to that baseline of normal in a reasonable amount of time? What's the new acceptable baseline of normal? And actually, that helps the entire risk management function plan what the recovery metrics look like. It also reduces organizational anxiety to have pre-thought these things and in the middle of this saying, okay, here's where we're at. This is the event going on. Here's where we are in our resilience plan. Let's talk about this. And when you can talk to a plan while you're in the middle of something and say, hey, we're actually on track. Like things may not feel good right now, Things may not look good right now, but all the metrics we pre-decided on are lining up here and we just need to tweak these things and we're heading back to this new baseline of normal. And now they're more informed, we can have that conversation, we can make the decisions about where we actually need to land versus where we projected we would need to land. Um, And it, it really informs, so the three of us are kind of on the, you know, the front side of risk management, threat detection, mitigation, right? And resilience is actually the backside, the landing pad. The Now that we're in it, how are we doing and how do we get back to a stable environment? Uh, so I think they can't really work well without each other. I was going to ask, yeah, because it, it feels, you know, more and more as we, we talk through this today is that this concept that the two are knitted together. And, and to me, it, you know, it sure has felt like they are we're always going to have those immediate response plans in place, right? Ransomware occurs, what do you want to do, right? And the technology will kick in and they'll start doing things, but then the analysts have to get involved. It gets to the second or third level. Eventually, <laughs> eventually executives will find out because they always do. And then you got to deal with that audience as well. But what I like about, you know, the way you talked about it, Tim, but also Alexander, from your perspective, is the concept of resilience then has to be part of this. In, in our planning process or in our look, when we look at an incident or a potential event from a resilience lens, we're on the, a good path, right? We're going to get back to normal soon. And here's where we are today. But how do you explain to an executive who can only be concerned about what it's costing per hour? What's the drop in the share price? You know, I, clients are being affected. Customers are being affected. How do you get them to start looking at things from that resilience mindset as opposed to that immediate hands in the air, run down the hallway kind of approach to managing incidents? No, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. The way I do it, and it goes back to what Tim was sharing before about storytelling, but it's mixing storytelling in data and facts and also experience, right? Experience. And I want to add the secret sauce to that, which is passion. Uh, I'm extremely passionate about what I do and what when I talk about it. So um, it's uh, usually not a, a huge issue for me to to get people's attention on this specific topic. Um, 
it's, I think it's a mix of all these things really to catch their attention. And of course, meeting them where they are um, in terms of their needs. And the thing is, I'm not, I, this one is going to be a, a, a bit harsh, but I'm not here to convince anyone to do anything. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, but uh, if people are not convinced themselves, I think they'll learn their lessons one way or the other someday. That's very clear. That's very clear. Because they have a responsibility, and I can't believe a, a, a professional and responsible CEO or a business leader would actually say that resilience doesn't matter, especially in 2022, right? Yeah. Um, right. Because people are at stake. The business itself is at stake. Yeah, we've definitely hit a new era with that, but it's not un unlike the security industry to where you may be trying to get buy-in for an initiative and they just don't get it. They don't care. It doesn't seem real to them, right? <laughs> and this is, Doug, where being on the inside of an organization organically can actually be better than being a vendor. Um, and there's a good partnership to be held there. You know, what do you do when you can't create buy-in uh, at the right levels, around a topic that's really important. You go and you find partners, you find people that will help you champion the cause, right? So legal, HR, audit, all of these other um, entities that actually look and deal with risk, they all have stories of how it's happened at other organizations, but also, and more importantly, they have stories about how close it's come to happening at this organization. Here's how it almost happened. Here's what it looked like and felt like when we discovered that threat, when that employee was threatening these things. And if it would have happened with these conditions that did actualize, the threat just never combined with the vulnerability to become an actual um, yeah. impact, right? This is what would have happened. And the measurements would have been this, and this would have happened this many times this year. So, like, you actually do need to be prepared. One of these days, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go through the entire life cycle. We're not going to be able to stop everything. And, you know, the funny thing is, is when I was a consultant, um, and, and even, you know, when I started new companies for the first time, I always asked them, like, why, why do you need security? And they say, make sure nothing happens. I'm like, well, we're going to fail then. Because <laughs> things yeah, are going yeah. to happen. That's yeah. literally why you hired security. Yeah. But how severe will the outcomes be, right? How quickly can we recognize and mitigate? And so these are the types of conversations that I think Alexandra's having on the resiliency side and, and we're having on the security side. How would you know or how would you advise your client to say, you've, you've come a long way, you're, you're as ready as you can be given the resources that you have? It's a long-term process, Doug. It's, uh, there is no, I, I don't think there is any short-term answers to that. And because many organizations have jumped into this resilience topic like a year ago or a year and a half ago, we won't see the results of this until the next several years. Okay. That's my view on this one. Because I remember one specifically one organization I was an employee with and 
I, I felt that the team, it's the security team, crisis management team was extremely resilient in what they were doing, what we were doing, right? And the level of influence we had around the company and everything. The VP had been building the program for 10 years. Uh-huh. Not for one year, not for 18 months, not for two years, 10 years. Yeah. So of course, it's, and that's the thing, we have to be patient. And that's why I'm, I was saying at the very beginning of the podcast, it's a process. Not, it's, it's not an end state because the thing is one day we'll be or for one disruptive event we, we might be highly resilient as a team and organization and the next disruptive event comes around a week later and we fall we mm-hmm. crumble why? who knows? who knows? there's so many factors that's why it's, it's again it's just it's not more than a process it's just a journey like life is and this is really what I'm tr- where I'm trying to 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 bring uh, my clients when I work with them. It's it's a journey. There's no way around it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a mindset, right? So just like uh, Alexandra brought up, and you guys talked about, you can't focus on every risk every day, right? You have to build habits, which mm-hmm. turn into a lifestyle, which turn into a culture yeah. of understanding what we're here to do, right? And then facilitating life to do that. So you need to set a North star, a North star. that's like, this is where we're going. We don't know if we're going to get there, but what is acceptable outcomes for you, right? Like risk thresholds. We talk about that all the time, but like, what does that mean? What does that feel like? And I used to, uh, for a long time, I used to do security design for ultra high net worth homes. So it was like, you're probably not going to spend less than a million dollars working with me because we're doing safe rooms. We're doing cameras. We're doing lockdown systems. We're, we're doing all of this smart homes to, and, and, you know, you have to get certain clients that want this type of thing. And the way it buys in is what is the life cycle, the lifestyle of your home? How do you want to live in it in a secure manner? And tell me what that looks like. Break-ins happen like around two or 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. They usually don't happen after you're awake, right? Where are you at two or 3 a.m.? You'd be shocked to find out how many tech executives are up in this part of the house working at yeah, 3 a.m., yeah. right? So like the ADT mentality, like your alarm's not gonna be locked because they may be out on the back patio during that time doing some work, yeah. right? And so you have to really understand what will support their lifestyle, their goals for living life in a secure manner, and that's how you tailor it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a process, it's a mindset, it's habits, and, and, and this, is, this is what we have to understand. We could go on and on for the, the entire evening for myself and for the entire day for you guys. Right. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I could elaborate on what Tim was just saying like forever, but yeah, yeah I'll shut up. <laughs> so so I, can't, I can't go to a vendor and buy a box of resilience and have it in by the end of the no, quarter? Sorry about this. I wish I could say, yes, I'm the vendor you should go to, but no. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was great, folks. I was... I, I learned a lot during this session with you folks, and I, I want to thank you both for being here. I think this has been one of those one of those topics I've been looking forward to chatting with, and it took us a while to get here. So thanks to both of you for your patience, and I just want to thank Alexander Huffman from uh, Crisis Ally and Tim Wenzel, co-creator for The Kindness Games, for being on the show with us. I really appreciate it, and I'm hoping that our listeners find something out of here 
even if it's just to focus on stories. Yep. I would be okay with that for, for the session for this one. So thanks everybody for this. I really appreciate it. It was a great session. Thank you, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Bitcha. Thanks for listening to the latest podcast from Caffeinated Risk. Make sure you visit our website, caffeinatedrisk.com, to stay up to date on what we've been working on. Our website has bios of our podcast guests, posts about topics we're passionate about, and even a library reference material we find valuable in the work we do every day. And don't forget to subscribe to Caffeinated Risk on your favorite podcast service. This way, you'll be notified when we release our next podcast, and you can listen to our previous guests just in case you missed them. Thanks so much for listening to Caffeinated Risk.